Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. In the NOCO is supported by Blue Federal Credit Union, with locations from Denver to Cheyenne, helping members tap into the power of community. More information at bluefcu.com. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. In the aftermath of wildfire, every survivor has a different path of recovery. On today's show, we hear what moving forward from the Marshall Fire is like when a home is still standing but uninhabitable. Would have almost been easier if it had just burned. And we talk with a climate researcher based in Louisville about how winter wildfires connect to the greater climate crisis. That's coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Henry Zimmerman. The Marshall Fire was, in many ways, precipitated by a perfect storm of climate threats we've experienced for decades in our region, primarily the extreme drought we've seen since the year 2000. Dry conditions across the Front Range led to the Marshall Fire spreading quickly to urban settings in Boulder County, with the help of dangerously high winds exceeding 100 miles per hour. For many climate researchers, watching dramatic disasters like the Marshall Fire unfold reveals the effects of climate change in real time. This is the case for Louisville-based geographer and global climate researcher Lauren Gifford. Lauren's home was spared, but this is the second climate catastrophe she's lived through in Colorado. Back in 2013, she dealt with historic floods while living in Boulder. Over this last week and a half, Lauren's been thinking about the compounding nature of climate change, how natural hazards come together to escalate threats. Lauren is with us now to talk about the Marshall Fire and how it connects to the greater climate crisis on a global scale. Lauren, thanks for being here. Hi, great to be here, Henry. So you're a climate researcher based in Louisville. I know you spend a lot of time thinking about and talking about the climate crisis. Did you imagine something like the Marshall Fire coming to your own community? You know, it's very interesting. I lived in Boulder for almost 10 years before I moved to Louisville, and something about Louisville felt very safe to me. Um, you know, coming out of the experiencing the floods in Boulder, um, I really looked around to where I was going to live and looked for potential natural natural hazards, and um, I was very caught off guard by this fire. And were you or any of your loved ones impacted? Uh, many, many friends and neighbors and, and and lost their homes. And I would say this whole community is dealing with a collective trauma. Well, how do you think living through, you know, you mentioned the floods and now this fire. How do you think living through all that um, impacts the way you look at climate research? You know, as this was unfolding, I just saw like this is climate change in real time. We have been talking for decades about, you know, the upcoming climate crisis and uh, what climate catastrophe will look like. And now we know the Marshall Fire is an example of a climate catastrophe um, and just the compounding nature of, of we, we call climate change a threat multiplier in that it takes existing natural hazards like drought, like a lack of precipitation, all these things that we've been experiencing here in the front range, unusual warmth, um, and then the start of a wildfire, and um, it exacerbates all of them. And, and what we saw here in Louisville and Superior um, is uh, a confluence of all of that. 
And have you seen this fire or any of the others Colorado has experienced create any sense of urgency to address the climate crisis? I, I hope that it would, um, but this is not the first um, urban wildfire that we've had in Colorado. We've had them, you know, north of Boulder in the foothills um, in Colorado Springs a few years ago. Um, and, and we still have not taken the steps that we need to take to address climate change at scale, either locally, nationally, or globally. What are some of the policies happening at a local level that you're paying attention to that have sort of fed into where we're at today in all this? Um, through my work, I tend to look uh, at a more global scale, um, but there's reverberations uh, locally. And I would say there's much more action happening locally, particularly in and around Boulder County than many other parts of the world. Um, one thing I look at globally is uh, the growth and expansion of carbon markets, uh, particularly carbon offsets, um, corporate commitments to things like net zero, um, which is you know balancing your, your carbon budget, a company's carbon budget to make it look like it's net zero. Um, and there's a proliferation of these types of mechanisms happening right now, but yet climate change is still perpetuating and getting worse. Um, and that's really problematic. Well, in a recent tweet, you mentioned that uh, you thought that a focus on market-based mitigation isn't the way forward. Um, that includes things that you mentioned, like statewide cap-and-trade policy and carbon taxes. In light of the Marshall fires, how are you thinking about these market-based climate solutions? You know, we certainly need money flowing to renewable energy infrastructure. We certainly need money, and we call this climate finance. We need money flowing to carbon removal activities. We need money flowing to uh, help people adapt and respond and react to climate change. Um, so we certainly need a lot of climate finance and much more than is circulating right now. Um, but what I think is problematic is a focus and this turn towards what I was talking about with um, false climate solutions that, that make climate action look legible on paper, um, make climate action look legible on Instagram and you know, other social media um, through corporate social responsibility, but actually is not addressing atmospheric greenhouse gas uh, concentrations at scale. Lauren, let me ask what you're going to be thinking about in the months to come. Obviously, you know, you're in Louisville, you're in kind of the heat of it all. Um, but what are you going to be thinking about moving forward? Um, you know, I, I've been thinking about climate change for 15 years myself. Uh, at first, it was an abstract concept that I had to explain to friends and family. And now this is something that is very real. It's, it's visceral. It's physical. Um, many, many people are vulnerable to it and have been impacted by it. And I hope that we can actually take steps, the steps that we need to take to help people adapt and to help people thrive in a changing climate. And uh, I'm just going to, I'm just, uh, I think I'm frustrated and I'm fed up with business as usual in climate action. And I really hope that we can be much more ambitious in, in action and not just word. Lauren Gifford is a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Arizona and affiliate faculty at MSU Denver. Lauren, thanks for speaking with us. Thanks a lot, Henry.
In the aftermath of wildfire, each survivor who lived in the burn path has a unique recovery experience. The recent Marshall Fire leveled some homes to the ground, leaving many others intact but uninhabitable due to smoke and ash. In some cases, the damage is so severe that moving back anytime soon seems impossible. Bronwyn Brewer, a Louisville resident and single mom of three, knows this well. They can't yet return to the home her family was renting in Louisville due to damage from the fire. She's with us now to share her family's experience and what navigating insurance and disaster assistance is like when a home is uninhabitable. Uh, Bronwyn, thanks for speaking with us. Thank you, Henry. First, let me just ask how you're doing and where you're joining us from. Um, My children and I and our dogs are at a hotel in Lakewood, and um, we're just taking things day by day. It's been just unimaginable, really. Everything's in limbo. Everything's in limbo, you know, Um, especially as a single mom. I try to, like, make sure that things are in order, and, you know, I stay organized and on top of everything so that, you know, things go smoothly with the kids, less stress for them. And this has just made it, I'm not even sure how to navigate. (laughs) Let's start by walking through what happened on December 31st. What was that day like for you? Um, Well, the 31st was the day after the fires. And luckily we woke up, um, we had gone to a friend's house. The day of the fires, we we couldn't even think past, like, you know, getting to my friend's house in Arvada. And she's amazing. I pretty much showed up at her door with no notice. And they brought us in and, (laughs) you know, big hugs and lots of tears and just grateful to have somewhere safe to go to. When did you learn about the extent of damage to your home? That day, we were able to look at the burn map and see that the fires had pretty much gone all around our townhome community. Um, We hadn't yet been back, but we knew that if, you know, we we could get back in the area that morning um, to see if it was still standing, see if there was fire damage. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm sure just like all of our neighbors, we were so anxious to, you know, just try to be home and see what's what. And, uh, it was that morning that we were actually able to go back. We had to sneak, sneak. Um, we basically had to go all the way around the community. We came up, you know, through Boulder, had to go way up around the North end of Louisville and come back around through Old Town to get to our townhouse um, and, you know, yeah, it was still standing, which, um, you know, it's funny, Henry, actually the first time I knew my house was still standing is my best friend's a photographer and she went exploring the area around 4.30 a.m. She was just dying to know like as well, cause she had been, you know, obviously a best friend you talked to very, frequently and she had gone and she sent me a picture so I woke up to seeing that the the house was still standing and so I knew as soon as I could get my daughter up my oldest is 16 as soon as I could get her up I wanted to head over and you know see what the damage was having no idea you know how close it had come or the smoke or the ash or soot that we would find inside so what was it like driving back through your familiar neighborhoods on your way back home and seeing what all that looked like? The first day that we drove back in that morning, it was terrible. Like we're just tears filling our eyes and just like um, for my oldest, it was actually still really traumatizing to 
still to this day it is over a week later, but she um, she was evacuated by police um, because I was not even home at the time of the evacuation. And so she had to drive out through the flames, basically flames on either side of the roads. And so when we went back and she was describing that to me, I, it was, um, is awful, it's terrifying to imagine um, anyone, no matter the age, having to drive through the flames and then to see these homes completely leveled to the ground, like a, a neighborhood that, you know, we trick or treat in and know so many uh, people from school and the community, it's just devastating. I can't even begin to describe it. It was like apocalyptic. Is it bittersweet? to know that the home you were renting is still standing, but it's still not a home you can stay in for now? Yeah, it's 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 funny, you know, everyone's talking about survivor's guilt and things like that. I think my biggest thing is I felt like, gosh, how much of a jerk am I that I, to some extent, would have, would have almost been easier if it had just burned. Because now we have this home but we can't live in it. And we have these belongings, but we can't have them anymore. Like some of it, we can still salvage. And for that, we're certainly grateful, but it's like, um, you know, I have a friend who was in a home in one of the neighborhoods that was leveled. And, you know, he even said to me, yeah, you know, I, I almost feel worse for you because now you have to, the process is longer. It's not a clean cut, you know, um, it's kind of like the trauma is ongoing and having to go back and it not being safe and it not being, none of this is simple. I mean, none of this is simple for anybody involved. Have you been able to qualify for assistance through FEMA or any of the other organizations that are coming to Boulder County to help in the aftermath of this? Um, I did go to the disaster center last week and I had applied for FEMA assistance and they you know the and I think this goes for just about um, anybody um, but that the initial application is often denied if you don't submit everything with it which that's fine that makes sense and <laughs> paperwork but yeah so having to file for um, FEMA assistance also involves if you have insurance making sure that you include your disclosures page and whatnot from your policy and what they might cover as renters, we have a renter's policy that in a situation like this, I, you know, it's funny, I, you don't, you never expect this. You never expect that you would need insurance, but I'm definitely an advocate for it because it's been, it's made the, the first days at least um, probably much easier because we could have somewhere safe to stay without, you know, going, without imposing on someone or feeling like, okay, here I am with three kids and dogs and you know, like trauma. That's <laughs> a lot for anyone um, to bring into someone else's home, let alone if you were just going for a visit. But um, but the, the disaster center was nice that they have all these services available. In fact, I mean, I think I spent several hours there when I only intended to be there for maybe an hour. Um, what was discouraging is that when I talked to Red Cross, um, they said that I didn't qualify for assistance um, other than basically, you know, someone to talk to. And um, 
fortunately coming from the community I do and the profession I'm in, I have plenty of moral support. It's, it's more of, you know, understanding the disaster and what steps to take and that they basically said, I'm sorry, we can't help you. Um, and I, it was, it was indicated to me that that was because we have insurance and that our home was not burnt to the ground. That's the first part of our conversation with Marshall Fire survivor Bronwyn Brewer, whose rented home in Louisville is still standing, but uninhabitable. After a short break, we'll hear more about her family's prospects of returning home and what still needs to be done before they can safely do that. listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. Based on official estimates, the Marshall Fire leveled more than 1,000 structures in Louisville, Superior, and nearby unincorporated Boulder County. And though many structures near the burn path remain standing, many are uninhabitable due to damage from smoke and soot. We're speaking with Bronwyn Brewer, a single mom of three who is facing that situation now with the home she was renting in Louisville. What kind of information have you gotten about returning to your home? I understand that one of your daughters has asthma, and even beyond that, it's just not safe to go back. But do you have an idea of a timeline or what steps need to happen next? We are still um, waiting to hear back from the claims adjuster. The insurance company was supposed to be out, um, but I haven't gotten return calls yet. So I'm working on that this morning, actually, after we talk. So wanting to, yeah, make some decisions. Um, The property management company put an air scrubber in last week for a few days and inspected the property. Um, They said that they aren't doing an air quality test, that they're not um, able to do any remediation really until we move, you know, much of our items out of the home and I have nowhere to move them to. So I'm not sure if I need to put them in storage, if I need to clean them and put them in storage, clean them and try to find a new rental, like just move all together. There's so many questions. Um, It's mind boggling. Like I just, and it's all, you know, two insurance companies coordinating plus a property management company, the owners as, and then us as the renters, it's, it's a nightmare. And I know we're not alone in that. I've talked with several friends in the area who also rent who, or even homeowners that they're going through similar types of things with smoke damage and soot. And there's just the process is at best going to be weeks. And that's at best. And knowing that there's so many, um, you know, hands in the in the cookie jar, I guess, I'm not sure how to say it, but the, you know, there's so many people involved with this decision and with the process that it's like slowed down tenfold for us. Like I've, I haven't even gotten word back if I should call remediation companies myself. And then even still, you know, hearing that they're booking weeks, if not months out, if they're even taking new clients at this time. You mentioned that you've been able to connect with other survivors who are kind of in a similar situation. Um, have you learned anything from what they've been going through or how it's applied to your situation? Or have you shared anything that you have found helpful? Yeah, I, um, you know, Louisville, 
he's a great community and we've always supported one another and been like everyone's always been really great and the Facebook pages have been amazing especially being displaced and not being in my community every day um, it's been a great resource um, I've been able to post like even you know working with nonprofits in the past I've been able to post um, some different opportunities for people to volunteer their time and items and money and things like that just so that to help the community um, as far as learning from other people's stories and they you know more and more is coming out about the dangers of the smoke and the soot that are in the homes you know friends and um, families that we know from school saying yeah we returned home we had some soot no big deal we went to you know and smoke and they put in maybe a air filter to clean the air and they're like, it smelled fine. It didn't smell smoky, but then, you know, you're getting headaches, nausea, you know, coughing. Um, it's, there's real effects of the toxins that are in that soot um, that still remains, not just, you know, on our porches or in our yards, but in our homes and in our attics and in the ductwork, like all of the HVAC systems have to be cleaned. It's it's overwhelming to think about the the number of people that you know. You we talk about um, you know nearly a thousand homes destroyed. That is a huge understatement. Um, yes, it's incredible that these homes have been leveled um, by the this catastrophic fire. But then you also have all of the surrounding homes that stand and are still dangerous for people to live in. Bronwyn, have you thought about where you and your family might go if you can't return to your home in Louisville? We have um, been exploring, you know, different plans as far as like relocating. The area is so expensive, so we were quite fortunate with our property that we were renting. It's really... Um, I was newly divorced when I moved in there and was just so grateful that I found something that would provide the space I needed for the kids. And, you know, I have, my son is 15 and six foot tall. And, um, you know, my oldest daughter is about to be 17 and then my youngest is eight. And, um, you know, we were very fortunate to have that space. As far as relocating, um, we're looking at maybe half the space at more expense. So I'm not really sure right now, Henry. It's like, I don't have the luxury of paying $3,500 a month for, you know, a rental home that might um, provide the same space. So now we're looking at maybe apartments and just looking for good school districts if I can't stay in Boulder Valley because it's, it's just so expensive here. <laughs> Bronwyn, is there anything else that you think is important for people to know about what survivors are going through or what people in Louisville and Superior are going through in general? I think, you know, we went to a birthday party yesterday and the family, this was, they were having the party in Boulder and that had been planned from before the fires. And when she texted to say that the birthday was still going, you know, the party was still on, but that they had lost their home. Of course, I, you know, we, we wanted to go and give the girls, you know, time to run around and have fun with their friends, some sense of normalcy. But at the same time, like all the parents are there talking about, you know, whether the homes were leveled or the, you know, they lost everything or they 
are just separated from everything, you know, being displaced or the smoke making them sick, all these stories, it was, it was a lot. It was, um, I think if everyone just um, keeps in mind that the trauma is not over, you know, the, the event is not, oh, the fire is put out and we can move on with our lives. It's, um, you know, it's a long rebuilding process. And while it's a really strong and beautiful community and uh, definitely everyone's coming together, it's still a lot of stress and a lot of trauma on so many different levels. I think just reaching out and listening sometimes is, you know, giving a hug when you can. Um, you know, resources, of course, you know, trying to find new resources for, you know, whether it's finding a new place to live, a new place to temporarily stay, all of it's helpful. Bronwyn Brewer is a Louisville resident, single mom of three, and Marshall Fire survivor. Bronwyn, thank you so much for joining us and for sharing your experience and all the best to you and your family. Thank you so much, Henry. You take care. You too. If you've been affected by the recent Marshall Fire and would like to share your experience, we'd love to hear from you. Please reach out to us by emailing coloradoedition at kunc.org. You can leave us a voicemail at 970-703-4081, or you can tweet us at KUNC. That's our show for today. State lawmakers will convene this year's legislative session on Wednesday this week. Tomorrow on Colorado Edition, we'll get a preview of what lawmakers are looking to accomplish. I'm Henry Zimmerman. This episode was produced by Tess Novotny. Our digital editor is Jackie High. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thanks so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. KUNC.